From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It was closer than expected and took longer than expected. But in the race to represent Pueblo and Grand Junction in Congress, incumbent Republican Lauren Boebert has eked out a victory. Democrat Adam Frisch conceding earlier today. Then taking stock of the midterms with our justice reporter, Allison Sherry. How Republicans in Colorado elevated crime as an issue. That message did break through to the statewide conversations, but I would say there are caveats. Later, how sushi went from rare delicacy in the U.S. to supermarket staple. Foodie and journalist Gil Asakawa joins us. His new book, Tabe Masho, Let's Eat, is a love letter to Japanese-American cuisine. Asakawa also explores how World War II incarceration in places like Kampamachi shaped food traditions. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Republican Representative Lauren Boebert has narrowly won re-election to a second term in Congress. Earlier today, her Democratic challenger Adam Frisch conceded the race. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is on the line. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Benta, walk us through how this very close race will certainly go to a recount, and yet Frisch conceded. So state law requires a recount because it is so close, but neither campaign expects the margin to change the results. Frisch trails Boebert by about 500 votes, and no Colorado recount in recent memory has resulted in more than a few dozen votes being reassigned. Hmm. So in his statement this morning, Frisch said it will be unethical to let his supporters believe there was still any hope. We believe in the integrity of elections in our great state of Colorado and are supportive of this recount to ensure continued faith in the security of our elections. However, the likelihood of this recount changing more than a handful of votes is very small, very, very small. What else did he say in this morning's remarks? Frisch said he was proud of his campaign, which drew support not just from Democrats, but also Republicans and unaffiliated voters across this vast district. And he said he did all of that in the face of deep national skepticism about his chances. I heard time and time again on the campaign trail, America is tired of the circus, tired of the lack of respect for institutions in our democracy, and tired of the lack of civility in our discourse. And this probably isn't the last we've heard of Frisch, because yesterday he filed paperwork to run again in 2024. What about Representative Boebert? What have we heard from her to this point? She actually declared victory well before Frisch conceded. So on Thursday night, she released a video on Twitter saying that she felt confident the results would stay in her favor despite the recount. My campaign team and our lawyers will definitely make sure everything is conducted properly. Past recounts in Colorado have resulted in far fewer votes being adjusted than anything that could affect the current outcome we're seeing tonight in this race. So come January, you can be certain of two things. I will be sworn in for my second term as your Congresswoman, and Republicans can finally turn Pelosi's house 
back into the people's house. Boebert also said in this video that with Republicans in control of the House, she wants to focus on things like reducing inflation, increasing border security, and keeping a check on the Biden White House. Inflation, a global phenomenon. Uh, the thing we keep coming back to is how close this race was. Even though Frisch didn't win, he got so much closer than anyone expected. What are you hearing about that? I've talked to several Republicans who really hope this election leads her to take a different approach for her next term. For instance, Robert Leverington, he's the head of the Pueblo County Republican Party. And he said initially when Boebert was elected two years ago, she was seen as this breath of fresh air. But over the last two years, we've watched her become a little bit more arrogant and condescending. And it kind of highlights her youth and immaturity. And I think that's turned off a lot of voters. And he wants Boebert to distance herself from some of the more radical local supporters. And he also said, quote, she needs to grow up and start acting like a congresswoman. And I heard sort of a similar message from a voter in Montezuma County, Alan Thayer. Her ideas are good. Her principles are good. But she's got to talk when it's her turn. She's got to not interrupt other people. Just tone it down. One of the big questions is whether Boebert is interested in taking any of this advice. One thing these results make clear is that Adam Frisch got the support, uh, indeed, of many of the district's unaffiliated voters, even some Republicans. What have you heard from those folks, Benta? One person who sticks out to me is Frankie Martinez. She's from Pueblo. She is unaffiliated, and she describes herself as basically a fiscal moderate. And she said it was more of a vote against Boebert than a vote for Frisch, because she said Boebert's tone and style is trying to be like a, quote, mini Trump. She spent her time and energy trying to grab headlines and get shock and use shock value as opposed to actually trying to get any sort of legislation done or making any progress. And I, I don't see how fighting all the time, um, you know, everyone's like, oh, she's a firebrand. I'm like, well, she's a just not getting anything done. The fighting all the time doesn't serve a purpose. I did talk to Democrats also who said it's excruciating to see how close this race ended up being. They can't help but think if Democrats had just mobilized a few more people or had more support from the National Party, there might have been a different result. Although, as you noted, Frisch appears to be looking at running again in two years, having filed that paperwork with the Federal Election Commission. So they may get another chance. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think this razor thin result almost guarantees Colorado's third congressional district will be back in the national spotlight again in two years because Democrats will try to seize this opportunity to build on Frisch's close showing. And then Republicans will certainly try to bolster Boebert to make sure she can hold on to office. I think one of the big questions will be what kind of record Boebert can build in Congress with Republicans having the majority in the House before her next run for re-election. Benta, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland with the latest from Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, where Republican incumbent Lauren Boebert has won re-election. Even though many Republicans across this state lost in the midterm election, candidates say they're proud of having shaped the conversation around public safety. Here's Republican John Kellner conceding the race for attorney general. 
You know, I want to elevate something. You know, at a time like this, I think it's hard to stand in this room, as many of us Republicans wonder, what's the, the future of our party look like in the state of Colorado? And we made some inroads in this state that may be hard or easy to overlook. And I want to talk to you about that. I mean, throughout this campaign, which was so focused on public safety, we changed a lot of hearts and minds, I believe, around this state about the importance of what's going on. I mean, heck, you know, we've talked about this a ton. We're number one in the country for auto theft. We convinced Governor Polis to all of a sudden get behind a bill saying, hey, well, I want to increase the penalties for car thieves. That happens because of campaigns like this. We raise the importance of the fentanyl epidemic and how we all need to come together to tackle that problem. That happens because of campaigns like this, where we are talking about these issues. Well, let's dive further into this dynamic with CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. You've reported extensively on the issues John Kellner mentioned there. Do you agree Republicans changed the message around public safety in Colorado, even though it didn't necessarily result in wins for the GOP? My short answer would be yes. I do think Republicans and the messages and the dark money spent in the last year of campaigning statewide did push an idea that Colorado is less safe than it used to be, that there are more auto thefts and fentanyl overdoses and break-ins than there used to be. So that, yes, that message did break through to the statewide conversations, but I would say there are caveats. Caveats? Like what? Yeah. Well, the question is whether the conversations were the right ones in terms of steering policy to address these problems. Problems, right? Like there was some social media in the new 8th congressional district that said now Congresswoman-elect Dr. Yadira Caraveo voted to legalize fentanyl. That's obviously kind of ridiculous. There was never a vote in the state legislature to legalize fentanyl. No one is proposing to legalize fentanyl, at least that I've heard seriously. So I think some of these narratives were kind of runaway. Might this have been more about trying to win an election than something substantive. Well, yeah. I mean, some Democrats and notable criminal justice advocates like Maureen Kane, who directs policy at the state public defender's office, say that the Republicans may have pushed public safety as a campaign issue, but it wasn't because they actually cared about public safety. They were trying to use it as a fear tactic to win elections. Here is Maureen Kane. It was not designed to raise the conversation around public safety. It was designed to get voters to be afraid and to vote Republican. And it didn't work. I feel the voters rejected their fear tactics. The campaign slogans, especially around the attorney general's office, about crime increase because of Bill Weiser, the attorney general's office has nothing to do with, with law enforcement. If you're not happy about it, look, talk to your local police department. You heard her. She would say, yes, there are lots of debates about public safety, but it wasn't for the right reasons. Regardless of the motivations, is your sense that the message broke through, namely forcing Democrats to respond when they might have wanted to keep the focus on something like abortion, for instance? Well, they did respond for one. You know, would Jared Polis have preferred to say, yes, crime went up on my watch in the last four years? I I don't think so. You know, and I think that makes John Kellner's point a little. I will say Kellner is an elected district attorney for more than a million people. He has dedicated his life to public safety. So it's not like I think he was purely talking about these things because of politics. But I think Democrats would say this is kind of a chicken and egg issue. Crime is up. It did go up, especially during the pandemic. Mm. And so they're not going to ignore that, right? You know, I think you've seen Governor Polis, though, in the last year, really prioritize public safety in a way he hadn't in previous years. 
In his State of the State last spring, Polis said he wanted to make Colorado one of the 10 safest states in the country in the next five years. We've already taken critical steps in fighting crime and promoting public safety, but there's a lot more work to be done. I'm proud to put forward a responsible public safety plan, builds on historic legislation of years past, giving much needed support and funding to local law enforcement while investing in community-based approaches, data-driven organizations that can help prevent crime from occurring in the first place. In addition, Governor Polis told you, Ryan, that he would support criminalizing possession of any amount of fentanyl. That's a pretty big departure from a lot of people in his party who think criminalizing drug possession simply hurts drug users and not necessarily dealers. Polis also took the step this fall to write a letter to the Bipartisan Criminal Justice Coalition, which works in the trenches to put together public safety legislation both sides agree on. (laughs) He urged them to crack down on penalties for auto thieves. So it's clear Polis thought about this in the last year. When I asked his staff about it after the election, they said that it was clear by his margin of victory that his, quote, common sense approach to public safety is supported by all Coloradans or at least a majority majority. of those voting. Uh, Allison, as we've said, crime is on the increase in Colorado. Violent crime up, auto theft up, fentanyl overdoses up. Uh, Democrats will continue to control the state house and Senate and the governor's office. So what are the elected leaders saying about what actually helps solve these problems? Yeah, and there's another caveat here, which is that some of these higher-than-usual crime numbers do seem to be leveling off a little bit. Auto theft, for one, seems to be hitting a plateau, even dropping a little than its highs of 2020-2021. But yes, no one wants to see the homicide levels as high as they are, the non-fatal shooting levels as high as they are, the fentanyl overdoses. And I think the solutions to these problems really do get to where my little beat is political in nature. Oh, it's not little justice. It's a big beat. It's a big beat. It's a big beat. Generally speaking, prosecutors, law enforcement types believe that strengthening penalties will decrease crime. That, for example, making all auto thefts a potential felony or adding mandatory jail time like Aurora is doing in their municipal courts as we speak will deter people from committing these crimes. Meanwhile, I suppose public defenders, criminal justice reform advocates think that's not the right approach. That is true. They think that tougher penalties don't really do anything for deterrence. That data shows that. That someone who steals a car in order to burglarize a store in order to get money to buy drugs because they're addicted, for example, is not going to parse the difference between a high-level misdemeanor and a low-level felony before deciding to commit that said crime. Mm. These advocates would add more resources, more drug counseling, more strategic help for people rather than jail and penalties. Here is Maureen Kane again talking about what she thinks is at the root of what's happened in Colorado in the past three years. If you look at the research, you know, on what causes crime and what causes people to reoffend, you know, it's all these stability factors that were turned on their head during COVID. Housing insecurity, unemployment, family disruption, family violence, mental health, drug use and alcohol use and abuse. Nobody in school. Everything's closed down. Churches aren't operating. You know, all of those societal factors. Police are not out. Courts are closed. You know, what what do people think is going to happen? But even with a Democratic majority in the state, I don't think these advocates like Kane believe the winds at their back right now on this. Hmm. Are there any bills in the works? Because the next legislative session starts in January. 
uh, that would address public safety issues, you know? Yeah, there are a lot of bills. I know right now they're drafting legislation that adds penalties for auto theft. As I mentioned, that was requested by the governor. They're apparently a little all over the place with that one. There's a proposal that they would change all auto thefts to felonies. Public defenders and criminal justice advocates will strongly push back against that because a felony conviction is a pretty destructive thing in your life. So predicting what a bill is going to say at this stage in November is slightly fraught, as you can imagine, but we'll keep watching it. And new faces being added to the legislature, of course, too. Lots of new faces. uh, That will change the dynamics. Allison, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. And I know we'll keep talking as this evolves. Yeah, I'll be here. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the remarkable rise of Japanese cuisine in America and how Colorado has contributed. I'm Ryan Warner. You're at CPR News and KRCC. Abram Arrington spent 30 years in Colorado state prisons for a murder he says he did not commit. His sentence and eventual clemency is not typical, but the emotional anguish he experienced while incarcerated is a sadly common story. I felt like one of those animals you see on one of those nature shows when they take the cage out and they open the door. Literally, that's how I felt. I'm Lucretia Wembley from the CPR Newsroom. Meet Arrington and hear about his journey from anger to inspiration. Visit CPR.org for the story. Japan may be an island, but when it comes to cuisine, it's no island. Swapping traditions with China, Europe, and yes, the United States. Denver journalist Gil Asakawa has a new book, Tabimasho, Let's Eat, A Tasty History of Japanese Food in America. He writes about the rise of sushi here, about Japanese-American salsa, yes, salsa, and how World War II incarceration shaped cuisine. Gil, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Nice digs, by the way, downtown. Thank you. Uh, You're appreciating our new studio. I do too. Uh, You were born in Japan, raised in the United States. Your mother was a major influence on your palate, and she cooked both Japanese and American food. But I figure we should start with her teriyaki sauce, which (laughs) you invoke in the opening pages. What stands out about it to you? Um... My mom, like I think a lot of ethnic mothers, um, she didn't really measure things. <laughs> she would just <laughs> pour some, you know, sake into a bowl and then pour some shoyu or soy sauce into a bowl and then scoop out some sugar. And I, I don't really remember her ever measuring things. That's kind of what I remember. And then when I went to college, I asked her for some recipes. And, of course, she didn't write anything down. <laughs> And so she just told me, well, I just use, you know, sake, soy sauce, and sugar, and, and, and that's it. And when I got to college, this is college, so, you know, I'm not going to go out and buy sake. I went and bought beer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and so I used beer for the longest time in my homemade teriyaki sauce. How did that turn out? It's pretty good, you know. I, I'm, of course, maybe it wasn't very good. I'm not a alcohol drinker, so I wouldn't know if, mm. if you could even taste it. But I used beer, and I think that's the one thing about probably all foods, but certainly Japanese food, that they are very adaptable. You know, all the dishes are, you don't have to be exact. You mm. can be like my mom and go with gut. 
It's interesting because teriyaki sauce is something that in my home you would buy, not make. <laughs> right. Uh, because, well, it's a nice shortcut. Do you always make your own teriyaki sauce if you're eating it at home? Uh, d- yes. Uh-huh. But you know what? We don't eat like teriyaki steak or teriyaki chicken. There is... Japanese Americans eat a lot of teriyaki chicken at things like the Cherry Blossom Festival. They'll go through like, you know... 3,000 chickens <laughs> in a weekend. Uh, and they, they marinate it, and then they grill it, and it's wonderful. In Japan, teriyaki chicken is not a thing. Teriyaki anything is not a thing. Teriyaki is just a way of flavoring foods. So it's like, it would be like an American saying, yeah, this is salted steak. <laughs> you know? It's fascinating to me that the most popular dish in Japan is actually a curry, you write. Yes, it... Um, uh, there was some statistic, and I forget the exact number, but it was something like, you know, 75% of Japanese families have curry at least once a week. But it's it's not like, because I grew up with Japanese curry, it's not like Indian curry uh-huh. or Thai curry. It's gloppy, stewy, has potatoes and carrots and onions and beef, uh, very specific ingredients, but it's it's an adaptation, which is one thing I found in writing this book is that I learned that a lot of the things that I think of as Japanese food Mm -hmm. are adaptations of food from other countries. So they appropriated culture. Um, In in the case of curry, it wasn't from India. They appropriated it from the British who stole it from India. (laughs) Oh, I see. So by way of... By way of England, yeah. By way of England. And you also talk a lot about the interchange, interplay between Japan and China. So many mm-hmm. of the things that we might associate with Japanese cuisine actually originated in China. Yeah, down to, you know, the very basics like tea. Mm-hmm. You know, green tea is uh, thought of as such a, a Japanese standard. But tea and, and a lot of things come from China, soy sauce. Um, soybeans, a lot of the things that are standard issue foods in Japan had their origins in China, but then they were adapted and changed and, uh, you know, to suit the Japanese palate. And then they changed again to suit the Japanese-American and the American <laughs> That's palate, right. as you write in this book. Your wife, Erin, has also helped shape your palate. Will you tell us about a dish her family makes, kakimochi? Oh, yes. Kakimochi is a... This is surprising to me because of one particular ingredient. I'll let you say it. That's a, it's actually a, like a teriyaki chip, corn chip. I, and, and I have the recipe in my first book, Being Japanese-American. I think there's a recipe for it in here. But it's, it's a chip that's sweet and salty and it has soy sauce and butter. And, uh, but its main ingredient is... Tostitos. Tostitos. (laughs) (laughs) But not the regular corn chips, the round ones. There's a mini size. Uh And that's what I use for uh, kakimochi. (laughs) This idea of fusion ingredients, right, true Japanese-American food, is also exemplified in a type of salsa. Would you describe karami for us? Yeah, karami is... um, it's something that I was introduced to, what, about a decade or 12, 15 years ago. A friend of mine who lives in Boulder had started a company um, to mass produce karami, which is kind of a Japanese-American variation from Pueblo, Colorado. 
Amazing. And the uh, the fam- actually the family of a former mayor of Pueblo um, was making this, and it's a side dish in Japan to have like pickled vegetables and various things, and and you serve it with rice or on top of rice or, or next to your protein, and uh, this wakame is one one name for it. Uh, was usually made with seaweed, wakame seaweed, uh, from the ocean. And Japanese Americans who were farmers or railroad workers in Pueblo found, huh, there's no seaweed. (laughs) (laughs) But they found something. Yeah, they found something that had a very similar mouthfeel in terms of like sliminess and texture. uh, And it was Pueblo chiles, green chilies. And um, and so they started using that, and it's really good. It's tasty. It has kind of a um, the flavor of a Japanese condiment with you know soy sauce and sugar, but it has a little kick because of the green chilies. And so you have a friend who makes this now. I think mm-hmm. it's available in jars at like Pacific Mercantile in Denver, which yes. is in Sakura Square. Yes. Yeah. And so the family is still making it. The, uh, the, the guy who was making it with my friend in Boulder, uh, he passed away, unfortunately, last year. I'm but, sorry uh, to hear that. But the family seems to be continuing to make it. Karami. You have invoked uh, Gil Asakawa, and if you're just joining us, uh, he's my guest, the author of Tabimasho, Let's Eat, A Tasty History of Japanese Food in America. You have invoked uh, rice and soy sauce. And I was surprised to read in the book that in Japan, it's not good form to pour soy sauce over your plain rice, which is so true in the United States, I you know? know. Um, yeah, my mom used to yell at me when I did that. Uh, it, it, was, it would be like rude. It would be like saying, this rice is terrible. <gasps> you know, I need to add something to it. But, you know, when you're a kid, I, I used to put all sorts of things on all sorts of food. I, I put uh, MSG, Ajinomoto, on Cheerios once. <laughs> I never made that mistake again. You also posted to social media recently that you put gravy on rice. Yes. Uh, kind of invoking the coming holidays. Yes. And then I just got a craving for gravy on rice. I thought, <laughs> what a brilliant idea. There's actually a couple of ways that that's kind of come into the culinary vocabulary, in, there's a Hawaiian dish called lokomoko, which is rice covered with uh, one or two beef patties, hamburger patties, and then topped with gravy, and then um, uh, an egg. Uh, uh, you know. You put an egg on anything. A fried you, egg. And I'm there. Yeah. And uh, it's called lokomoko. And uh, you can usually get the gravy on the side. It's usually brown gravy. But I've also had it with the white gravy that comes with, like, chicken fried steak. (laughs) And and chicken fried steak is great on rice. Uh, But then, so, yeah, for Thanksgiving, we used to have, uh, even I had growing up, you know, we'd have rice. We'd also have mashed potatoes. And Mm -hmm. you... Use your little spoon to make that little volcano crater in your mashed potatoes. We used to call that the gravy jacuzzi. The gravy jacuzzi. Uh-huh. That, that's good, too. Uh, that's very Colorado, actually. <laughs> and, then, um, and then we'd put gravy on both the rice and the mashed potatoes. But really, 
I love gravy on rice. And when I posted that picture the other day, I was asked for a picture of it because uh, a publication out in California wanted a couple of sentences from me on what's an unusual Japanese-American holiday dish. And that's what I sent. And when I put it on social media, I was shocked at how much uh, interaction it's gotten. And a lot of Japanese-Americans saying, yes, that's what I love best about Thanksgiving. And it's true. I'm not a huge fan of turkey or dressing, but, man, gravy on rice. Gravy on rice. I think I might do it this year. Please. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, As I said, you moved from Japan to the United States as a kid. Uh, This was in the 1960s when there wasn't much Japanese food here. Uh, Now you write, Japanese restaurants are in every city and sushi's in supermarkets across the U.S., uh, which made me want to play a movie clip that you mentioned in (laughs) the book. It's from 1985's The Breakfast Club. What's that? Sushi. Sushi? (laughs) Rice, uh, raw fish, and seaweed. You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're going to eat that? Can I eat? I don't know. Give it a try. Was that pivotal, do you think, that scene? I don't know if it was pivotal. Like, you know, the the teenagers or the young adult, that which I was in 1985, I was working as a music writer at Westward at the time. Um, I don't know that, that that scene would have changed people's minds uh-huh. or, or kind of stirred any curiosity. But there was definitely a movement and, and like the Hollywood elite. So like in 1988... Um, Michael J. Fox was on the cover of Esquire magazine with a plate of sushi. And and so there was definitely this awareness growing, this hipness factor, uh, you know, what we would today call influencers who were catching on (laughs) to sushi. And I love that scene because it shows that in 1985, sushi was still pretty much a weird thing for mainstream America. Yeah, the notion of raw fish. <laughs> I, I know, mm-hmm. which is what people used to tease me when I moved to the U.S. when I was in third grade. And, you know, people would tease me, you eat that raw fish stuff, huh? Ooh, yuck. And I'm, I'm sure the grandkids of those kids that teased me back then, their grandkids are eating sushi a couple, <laughs> three times a week from, you know, the supermarket. And it's not very good sushi, but it'll do in a pinch. You know, I also think that the rise of seaweed as an edible food in the United States, must follow a similar trajectory. Because, of course, sushi is often wrapped in seaweed. I remember when it became more in vogue to have dried seaweed, just a little strip of dried seaweed. Do you remember those? Yeah, as a snack. Yeah, and some kids in my school, I remember growing up, uh, their parents would pop those into their lunches, you know. Yeah, the seaweed, I didn't actually focus, I should, maybe in the, in the sequel, <laughs> I'll have a chapter on seaweed. Seaweed is everywhere in Japan in all sorts of different ways, uh, regional seaweed. And, um, and seaweed definitely is, is part of that. Seaweed was part of the movement for health food yeah. that started in the late 60s, early 70s. In but when US. you say regional sea, uh, seaweed, in other words, it, there's like terroir. Yeah, for seaweed. There's, there's, you know, in Okinawa, there's a form of seaweed called mozuku, which is kind of like, looks like little hairy balls of mush, huh. uh, but it's really good. 
And, my and that's going to be different from another yeah, kind you, of you can't get tumor. that in mainland Japan. My mom is from Northern Island of Hokkaido on the easternmost tip, and she always swore that the that the uh, seaweed from her hometown of Nemuro is the best in Japan. Right. So, um, but yeah, it was part of that health food kick. The original Japanese sushi, like way way back, would not be recognizable to no. people today. No, because it was fish that was fermented in like spoiled rice for like two years, and I think I I've never had it. There's uh-huh. a there's a lake Biwa near Kyoto where uh, you can it's there's a town that still serves and makes it and serves it, and I want to go there sometime and try it, but. I assume it to be kind of pretty stinky, salty, like <laughs> gefilte fish only on steroids, you know. Oh, it's funny you invoke gefilte fish, <laughs> which is part of my upbringing, but I was thinking lutefisk, too. Oh, lutefisk, you know? yeah. yeah. I'd like to talk about how the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II shaped foodways. Um, Colorado, of course, was the site of Kampamachi. Um, perhaps, Gil, we can focus on soy sauce that was made in the camps. Mm-hmm. It was some of the camps had the wherewithal and the materials where they could make soy sauce, but instead of, you know, real soy sauce, which would be aged for a long time, years, uh-huh. you know, in, in these huge caskets, uh, they were made quickly, and I, the, the, the name of the process escapes me, but it was basically soy sauce light, and it's what was sold as soy sauce by La Choy and, you know, what's the other, uh, you know, the other... Like Kikoman. Uh, no, Kikoman makes real soy sauce from Japan. Oh, okay. Although they make it here in the U.S. now. But there were a couple of Chinese food package uh, companies that were formed in the 20s and 30s and that were, they actually helped popularize Chinese food even though they weren't particularly <laughs> the uh, uh, authentic, quote-unquote. They were uh, started by Caucasian men who just saw an opportunity. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, there's a whole history of, of uh, Chinese food that way. You know, Gino's Pizza Rolls? Yeah. That was created by the Jewish man who started Gino's Pizza uh, and w- was, uh, was selling, I think it was La Choy, uh, you know, Chinese food, packaged Chinese food. And he had this great idea to put, let's put pizza stuff inside an egg roll wrapper. <laughs> there you have it. And so this was a, a fast soy sauce that was yeah. made in, in the camps. In the camps. Yeah. And so it it, um, it helped kind of take the edge off uh, camp food and make it more authentic. And And, you know, camp food was something that was uh, important and it, it helped it, uh, change the, the things that Japanese Americans ate, you know, and uh, got sick of eating certain things that were fed all the time, uh, like cottage cheese. Mm. And, and then uh, also they, they got to celebrate New Year's every year with uh, as much traditional, authentic, quote-unquote, uh, Japanese food as possible for the New Year's. Music, not just food, makes it into your book, (laughs) specifically this 1963 tune, which hit number one on the American Billboard charts. Yes. (laughs) 
Sakamoto is known as the Elvis of Japan. Yes. But it's the title of this song which you're dancing to, Gil Asakawa, <laughs> author of Tabimasho, Let's Eat. Um, the title of the song that stands out for our purposes today. Yes, it's uh, it's called Sukiyaki to everybody in the West. But in Japan, it was called Ue o Muite Aruko, which means I look up as I walk. And that's to prevent my tears from spilling over. Oh. Uh, and it sounds like a really sad song for a lost love. So I really think they should have called it Sayonara, which was a pretty common Japanese word that people knew in the West. But they called it Sukiyaki because the British producer who heard the song in Japan wanted to release an instrumental version in the UK. And he called it Sukiyaki because he had just had Sukiyaki for the first time and he <laughs> loved it. This was in the late 1950s. And, and so um, that's how it came to be called Sukiyaki. Sukiyaki was one of the three foods of Japan that Americans or Westerners were aware of in the years after World War II. So it was uh, uh, sukiyaki, teriyaki, and tempura. And tempura. Yeah. Oh. And, and so sukiyaki is like, you know, people heard the word sukiyaki and they knew right away, oh, this is going to be something Japanese. And maybe delicious for the ears, at least. <laughs> yeah. You know, we could keep talking uh, about the invention of mochi ice cream, uh, but I'm just going to leave it for people to read the book. Gil, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been fun. Gil Asakawa of Denver has written Tabemasho, Let's Eat, A Tasty History of Japanese Food in America. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. That so many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. Every time I walk on snow and ice, I'm haunted by a spill I took several years ago. Once I picked myself up, I reached Ellen Sarvey of Pinnacle Assurance, the state's largest workers' comp insurer. My grandfather always told me, when you're walking, don't put your hands in your pockets. Brace your fall. That's what hands are for. That's what arms are for. Is that good advice? The advice is to have those gloves on so you can help with your balance as much as anything. You uh. need to be careful about bracing the fall because then we see a lot of broken wrists and, and that sort of thing when folks fall down. So keeping your hands out of your pockets will hopefully help you from keep you from falling down altogether. Oh, interesting. Okay, he, he was close. He was close <laughs> he was to close. the truth. I think so. Are there better ways to walk to avoid Falls. Definitely. Okay. Uh, the, probably the most important thing is to just slow down. That's probably the biggest problem with slips falls is folks are in a hurry. You get a little bit of distraction in there, and that's a, that really contributes to the that, falls. That is exactly what happened with my fall a couple of weeks ago. I was just very quickly trying to get snow and ice off my windshield, and I wasn't being mindful about where I stepped, and <laughs> I fell backwards. Okay, good. so speed is part of it. Speed is part of it. One of the visual clues that we give folks is to walk like a penguin. Might sound a little silly, but it really works. If you think about 
a penguin. Penguin doesn't have his hands in his pockets, first off, right? <laughs> so he's got his hands out for balance. And think about that slow, deliberate movement, kind of with your toes pointed out a little bit, with your feet planted flat on the ground, gives you really good contact with the ground. Walk like a penguin. Walk like a penguin. I also am mindful of the kinds of shoes I wear. I have gathered from experience that some of my shoes are more slippery than others. Yeah. All you have to do is look at the bottom of the footwear and make a good choice in what you're purchasing to walk outside in the wintertime. Most winter footwear will will say something like that on the bottom. It'll say slip resistant or snow traction or something like that to give you a clue that that's what it was built for. I'll just note for those who are aesthetically inclined, you can also bring a change of shoes that you can wear to the office. Exactly. Exactly. And we encourage employers to encourage their employees to do that. Give them a place where they can put those snow boots so they can put on their nicer shoes or their dress shoes or their work shoes. One of the the footwear types that we advocate is for like restaurant workers and healthcare workers, which is a slip resistant shoe that has a special grid pattern on it that's really built to help keep them on their feet on like tile floors and wet floors mm. and things like that. But those particular shoes really don't do good out in the snow. And that is Ellen Sarvey of Pinnacle Assurance, the state's largest workers' comp insurer. We spoke a few winters ago about safer ways to walk on snow and ice. And just a quick correction, penguins, of course, have flippers, not hands. For when my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up, dust myself off, start all over again. Don't lose your confidence if you slip Be grateful for a pleasant trip And pick yourself up, dust yourself off And start all over again Maybe you've noticed some haircuts of yore making a return Shags, buzz cuts, and even the mullet are back on pates across Colorado but they may represent more than a love of retro style. CPR's Paolo Chalcida spoke with a community of stylists and their clients about reclaiming controversial cuts while celebrating identity. Inside a small bungalow just off the north end of Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Ezra Burns sits in the chair where she gives her clients haircuts. The chair stands out from the others in the room thanks to a luxurious fur throw draped over its back. My clientele ranges from... Older folks who are retired and just want something low-maintenance to super trendy queer folks who want to express themselves. Burns began cutting hair professionally five years ago, but her roots started when she was a 17-year-old exploring the punk scene with her friends. I had a mullet. Most of my friends had skullets. We we just looked crusty and punky. (laughs) Some of those hairstyles are back. If you look at Burns' Instagram, you'll see a lot of mullets and shags, iconic haircuts from the 70s and 80s. So many of those iconic rock stars, musicians, poets, they had these looks and people kind of were either intrigued or offended by them, but they were definitely identified as a certain type of person. Shags, mullets, and all those queer looks have almost reinvented themselves over time because people want to be seen as who they are. Burns isn't the only hairstylist in Colorado fostering a safe space for queer folks. Maeve Ladonio owns Mal Queer Hair Studio in Boulder with their partner Mateo Ladonio. Both identify as queer. When Maeve was a kid, they wanted a short, faded buzz cut, what many would consider to be a man's haircut. 
but no one would give it to them. They were like, oh no, honey, you don't want, you don't want clippers on your head. We're going to give you like a nice, soft, feminine haircut. It didn't feel right, so they started cutting their own hair. That's a common coming-of-age experience for non-gender conforming kids. Now, Maeve cuts hair for a living, hoping to help people in their community avoid the same bias they experience from hairstylists. Maeve says they were surprised that Boulder, which is typically viewed as younger and more progressive, didn't have a dedicated queer hair studio. I kind of realized that we needed a space where people could feel like safe and comfortable to talk about how they want to present. Many of Maeve's customers, like Eric Moore, just want a hairstyle that fits their lifestyle. One thing that's really important to me is I, I don't want to spend more than 30 seconds in the morning. <laughs> Maeve isn't in the business of asking their clients what number they want and then shopping away. They have long conversations with clients about what shape, length, texture, color, and density they want. Here's part of that conversation between Maeve and a new client, Liz Lindemann. And then as far as like the overall vibe of the haircut, would you like me to incorporate more masculine touches, more feminine touches, or kind of like a good mix of both? Honestly, more masculine at this point. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Maeve and their husband, Mateo, hope they can expand beyond haircuts to address various hair problems queer people face. Mateo, a trans man, says he dealt with hair loss after starting testosterone something many hairstylists haven't experienced themselves. He says getting a hair topper, which is like a small wig, helps rebuild confidence after transitioning. The immediate like sort of uh, result of like putting it on was just, wow, I just feel more youthful, more um, energetic. Mateo's experiences influenced the couple's plan to offer a service focused on hormone-related hair loss. The queer hair studio scene is overwhelmingly white, but the market is slowly growing for hairstylists who serve queer people of color. Rhonda Curley recently opened Curls, Kinks, and Coils, a hair studio on Denver's 16th Street Mall. She hopes to reach other people who have had trouble finding someone who knows how to cut textured hair and creates a safe space for queer expression. When they're confident, they just shine a little more and then they can just have an easier time in life, which being BIPOC and being queer is already hard. <laughs> so like, let's just make it a little easier and make you at least feel like you look good. A bill prohibiting discrimination based on a person's hair passed the state legislature in 2020. Curley says many people of color still hesitate to embrace their natural hair, even though the law protects it. She says she once felt the same way and took tiny steps to break away from that mentality. It is so freeing to get away from it and to start truly living your life and find that love for yourself because you can't love yourself when you're trying to be somebody else. Self-love can come in all shapes and lengths. Maybe even a crusty mullet. I'm Paolo Shasta, CPR News. Finally today, as a listener to Colorado Matters, you may be familiar with the music of Avornin. The Denver-based Celtic folk act was on our 2020 holiday show, and they're always a favorite around St. Patrick's Day. There's a nice sweet last and her name's Mary Mac. Make no mistake, she's the miss I'm gonna attack. There's an awful lot of bells that would get up on her track, but I'm thinking that they'll have to get up early. I'm Mary Mac's father's making Mary Mac. Marry me, my father's making me Mary Mary Mac. I'm going to marry Mary for my Mary to take care of me. Well, I'll be making Mary when I marry Mary Mac. The band doesn't just play traditional Irish music. This weekend, they revive a tradition, performing the classic Bob Dylan record, Blood on the Tracks, in its entirety. Avernine's frontman Adam Goldstein started this years ago in coffee houses and other venues around Denver. He told us his relationship with the 1975 album started as a teenager. Through high school, every heartbreak that I had, I found 
a place to go to in that record. And that continued in college, continued through my adult life. And as I started playing music, as I started playing guitar specifically, those songs were the first ones that I learned how to play and I learned how to sing. And uh, with Dylan, I was committed to memorizing his lyrics, even the tunes that had 14, 15 verses, just because it just seemed like such poetry to me. Early one morning the sun was shining I was laying in bed I wondering if she'd changed at all If her hair was still red Her folks, they said our lives together Sure was gonna be rough They never did like mama's homemade dress Papa's bank book wasn't big enough Well, I was standing on the side of the road With the rain pouring on my shoes Heading out to the east coast Lord knows I paid some dues Getting through More than 20 years after I first found the record, we're going through rehearsals and there are just lines that just hit me to the core because the more that I live, the more that I see the wisdom and the beauty of the lyricism of this record and also the music of this record. Uh, then she opened up a book of poems, handed it to me. It was written by an Italian poet from the 13th century. And every one of those words rang to glowed like burning coal. Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue, as performed by Denver's own Avornine. The band continues its tradition of playing Dylan's 1975 album, Blood on the Tracks, Sunday at Swallow Hill Music. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that keeps up even though times they are a changing. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. I'm going to pour some gravy over rice very soon. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. All the people we used to know, they're an illusion to me now. Some are mathematicians, some are carpenters' wives. Don't know how it all got started. I don't know what they do with their lives. But me, I'm still